Good afternoon. It's Friday the 9th of October 2020, just after one o'clock. Welcome to UK Column News. I'm your host, Mike Robinson. Joining me in the studio today, Patrick Henningsen from 21st Century Wire. Welcome to the programme, Patrick. Great to be with you, Mike. Uh, and we're going to get straight on in with, well, the news that uh, pubs in Northern England could be closed in a new COVID crackdown. Lots of people telling us that swathes of Northern England are facing the prospect of tough new coronavirus restrictions. Of course, this follows on from what uh, Scotland announced um, and, uh, well, when is the announcement actually going to be? That remains to be seen, but this is what is very likely to happen. Um, interesting that policy is being drifted down from north of the border, Mike, isn't it? Uh, it it's absolutely interesting. It's uh, not surprising, however, because this seems to be the way it goes. So Scotland's a beta testing ground, and then once it's adopted, it, they, they bring it down to the UK or England. There's certainly, that's one possible explanation. Another one is that uh, uh, for whatever policy reason, uh, Scotland is being presented as the leader at the moment. Um, and uh, so, well, that uh, that may be for future discussion with David Scott, but look, uh, pubs in Northern Ireland to be, uh, sorry, in Northern England to be uh, closed. Uh, well, don't worry because uh, Rishi Sunak is riding to the rescue. Uh, his new job support scheme, which he's going to announce today, will help businesses that may have to close in the coming weeks or months. So not quite sure what that's about. He's helping businesses that might have to close. This doesn't really make sense because everything that he's been saying and the government has been saying is that only viable businesses will be encouraged to stay open. Uh, and I mean, you were saying before the programme, Patrick, some people being told they are going to have to retrain. Well, in an interview just a few days ago, uh, Rishi Sunak said that he was asked about what about all the musicians? What about all the artists, uh, the actors, the people that have you know made this country world famous, really, in, in terms of arts and culture? And his response was, well, they're going to need to adapt and, and maybe retrain. So he's, he's effectively telling all the artists and the musicians, the actors, you're going to have to retrain. You're going to have to sort of find other jobs, maybe working in the track and trace industry or who knows. Um, so retraining, moving into viable jobs only, and yet he wants to support businesses that have to close or may have to close. It doesn't seem to make sense, but the question is what's going on here? We've got uh, businesses being forced to close as a result of lockdown, but the government starting to push a little bit of money and not very much, but a little bit. Um, well, I think we're gonna uh, call this Patrick uh, April Fools, uh, but it's in November. Uh, and what's going on here, of course, is what we're gonna show that what's justifying all this stuff, but they seem to be determined to play out exactly the narrative we had in April in November. Uh, and so it, we would be fools to fall for it. So basically they're doubling down on basically all of the talking points, all of the government's strategies from, from the spring. Uh, they're going to expect to see them doubling down on that for the winter, even though they've all more or less been disproven by the data. Uh, they've been wrong at every turn uh, in terms of all of their sort of de mm -hmm. decrees and all of their policies, but yet they're going to double down on it for the winter. Why on earth would they be doing that? Well, one obvious reason might be, Mike, that uh, uh, if there is no second wave or that the, 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 the pandemic emergency doesn't happen uh, the way everybody's uh, foreseeing it, uh, they'll say that it's because it's because of our measures, it's because of our lockdowns, mm. uh, that we suppressed the virus and we kept everybody safe. And so, you know, and you've glued your thumb to your. Know, yeah, know, it's, it's really annoying. Tricky. But, but look, let, let's put this back on screen again, because, of course, what they're saying is that there's a, a sharp rise in deaths once again, and this is what's being used to justify it. But actually, if we uh, zoom in a little bit here uh, and look at the situation come the uh, 8th of October, well, forget about the, the line at the very end there, because that, uh, uh, that they haven't got the full data in yet. But if we put a trend line on this, uh, I think we can see that the seven-day moving average is again moving down. Um, so where is the justification uh, for this? I don't see it, but it doesn't end there uh, because more justification pushed out through mainstream press. Here is The Guardian. Hospitals in north of England to run out of COVID beds within a week. And to use that annoying phrase, wait, what? This just doesn't, this does not make sense. This looks like egregious propaganda right here, Mike, that running that sort of emotive headline. That's not journalism. Absolutely. So let's look once again at the uh, the uh, government's April Fools in November graphs from the uh, COVID uh, charts that they publish, uh, and look at the end. We'll zoom in on this, and we find that in England at the moment, that's the whole of England because they don't break it down by uh, so-called regions. Uh, there are three hundred and sixty-eight 
COVID beds filled at the moment. Uh, now, that compares to about 3,000 in England at the peak. Uh, so not, we're around the 10% mark at the moment, and yet the north of England, we are expected to believe, uh, is running out of beds. How does this work? Well, we've also been told that they increased the capacity of the healthcare system back in the spring uh, in order to cater for surges in COVID. Have they rolled back all of that uh, increased capacity? What happened to all of this revolutionary uh, NHS preparedness that the government uh, said they did and have been spending tens of billions of pounds supposedly doing? Well, uh, it, it, was, it, it, was, it was simply shut down. It was shut down and they're not, they're being a bit slow to start it up again because of course, if they start it up again immediately and provide uh, the capacity of the Nightingale hospitals, for example, then there would be no justification for any of this stuff. And also the press might be lying or might be twisting uh, the story or twisting the truth as they so often do, uh, saying that the North is going to run out of beds if we don't lock down. This is basically the message, isn't it? Uh, well, it is, but uh, look, there's another message and it's this, buy to comply. So the government is de determined to get compliance um, on these uh, lockdowns and on people's behavior, uh, on wearing of masks, on social distancing. Now, we, as we've highlighted before, shouldn't really be using this term social distancing because there's nothing social about it. But anyway, uh, let's move on uh, because a couple of weeks ago or a week or so ago, we showed uh, a little bit of video from one of the mayors from the north of England really saying he was going to rebel against this. Uh, but actually, the rebellion from the cities and regions, as they like to call them, um, it's only on the basis that they want more money. So we won't comply with what the government, central government is saying unless you give us more money. So the government needs to buy to comply. This is the message. The same for industry. Give us more money. You're not, uh, you know, airline industry, for example, will be coming onto that in a few minutes. Uh, give us more money to support us. Uh, and in fact, EasyJet just announced a massive loss of uh, 800 million pounds this year, first loss in their history, but they're getting a huge bung from the government. Uh, to make up for that, so but they want more. Uh, but even, Patrick, it has to be said, individuals um, are also demanding more money uh, to support. Uh, they, they're quite happy to comply large, to a certain degree, but so long as the, the financial support is, is underpinning the compliance. Well, they've done that with quarantines as well, so it's just to buy off all of those different sectors, to buy off cities and regional governments from rebelling, pay them, to buy off various industries, give them handouts, give them bailouts, give them money. And of course, they're more likely to comply. And to, of course, the last one is to buy out individuals. What do you need to do? You need to, to pass out some cash. And so by doing this systematically, uh, the government's able to take care and sort of calm any of the brush fires of discontent that might be uh, brewing in various sectors. And this is what we've seen in Australia. Australia has been very skillful in paying the right people at the right time. And that's kept more or less more than 50% of the population on side with the sort of uh, uh, authoritarian lockdown regimes. Uh, absolutely. Now, uh, in a second, you're going to cover how uh, one of the ways that we're being gaslit by the government and mm -hmm. by the media. Uh, but just to finish this segment, as, as we move through this program, uh, we're going to be highlighting situations where really uh, us as individuals are going to have a choice about whether we do comply or not. And it's going to be made very difficult for us not to comply because in order to do the things that we are used to, we used to be able to do, we're going to have to do certain things. And the question is, what choice are we going to make? And this, this is part of it. This buy to comply mantra is, is part of that. We have to make decisions about how, we're, how we are going to react to this stuff in the future as individuals. Um, and uh, sometimes that means that we're not going to be able to do the things that we might like to otherwise do. Which means that you might want to, say, boycott or protest a certain industry or service, but then on the other side, the government's behind that industry or company offering them some cash. Absolutely. Yeah. So it's, it's pushing and pulling in two different directions. Yes. Yes. So uh, what's Matt Hancock been up to? Well, Matt Hancock's a busy little boy. He's a busy little boy. He tweets often and uh, every day, and some of the stuff that he's putting out is, uh, in a word, desperate. But we're going to call it uh, basically something else. But he, he's saying here, uh, we all have a part to play to stop the spread of the coronavirus so we can keep the NHS open and save lives. So is that what we're doing? Are we keeping the NHS open? Is he not threatening to what, to close the NHS if we don't all do our part? Isn't that, how else can we read that? 
uh, well, well, we might see how we would read that later on with and the to, NHS, but absolutely, and yeah. To, and to save lives. And then finally says, we need to suppress the virus, protect the economy by closing the economy, uh, protect education by shutting down education, and, and protect the NHS by shutting down the NHS. Yes. Until the magic, wonderful, miracle panacea vaccine arrives, uh, which can keep us all safe. That's debatable on its own. And of course, it doesn't matter how many people die and why we wait. That's right. That's right. That's just collateral damage until uh, we get to the end of the yellow brick road. I'm calling this nudging 24-7 because this is what Matt Hancock's job basically is. He himself is an empty vessel. His job is nudging 24-7. And let's look at what accompanied this tweet. This is where it gets really interesting. He pasted that in his tweet. He pasted the front page of the Daily Express. And look at the message on that. It's very tough, but we have to stick with it. And I might, I might add next to it, Jane Fonda doing a spread eagle, yeah. uh, right, which is a disturbing image in itself. But nonetheless, there's Matt Hancock right next to Jan, uh, Hanoi Jane. So it's very tough, but we need to stick with it. I mean, what is this? How can a government minister, Mike, uh, commandeer the front page of a daily newspaper, basically bludgeoning the public? Uh, with propaganda messaging. I mean, what kind of a press or media is this? It's almost like they might as well have the government logo across the top of the Express newspaper. Well, Patrick, we've got to think back a couple of years to when he was launching the Cairn Cross Review into the freedom of the press. Uh, and he said very clearly then that we are in a real, uh, the press is in real trouble. It needs support from the government to underpin it. But he said it would be a real uh, danger to democracy if if that wasn't handled in a very carefully and of course they've handled it as ex exactly as they intended to handle it from the start the the, the press is now utterly compliant on them because they've been paid to comply so it's hashtag pay to comply all the way here so here we go let's uh, look at who else is at it as well uh, this is uh, Nadine Dorries and this is what she's saying uh, if you don't believe the scientists trust the doctors get tough now to save the NHS from imploding doctors urge and again she's putting a mainstream media headline so the the uh, the politicians are so vacant uh, and so devoid of any of their own analysis or anything like that what they're doing is just blasting the public with mainstream media articles that are just advancing their own talking points and here's a close-up here you have to pay attention to every single detail because every single thing from their Twitter profile, the background image of their Twitter profile, take a look at this, what she got at the top, the Nightingale Hospital. Mm -hmm. That's basically foreboding. Uh, I would say that the, I'm seeing a lot of push towards the uh, reintroduction of the Nightingales as a major set piece uh, for the government. But she's the health minister of state, Mike. And what is she doing exactly here with this tweet and pushing this Times article, which is basically... Uh, telling people they need to fear an implosion of the NHS. What is she doing here? This is a common fallacy. It's called appeal to authority fallacy. She herself cannot uh, back up or give the provenance of her claim. So what she's passing the buck uh, to the doctors now. Mm -hmm. uh, so and the scientists regard uh, the scientific community, Mike, is split on this right now. There's two converging or sorry diver diverging. diverging parties within the scientific community clearly on lockdown and on what is the best practice in terms of policy. So she's trying to basically, she's basically gaslighting the public here. She's saying, don't, don't look at the scientific debate, which is, which is quite lively right now. And uh, with, you know, d diverging opinions. No, listen to the doctors, listen to our NHS doctors, because all of a sudden the doctors in the NHS are now uh, epidemiology experts and policy experts and mm -hmm. things like that. So this is absolute gaslighting. We'll just go back there and take another look at that. And so where is this heading? Let's take a look at that article that she's tweeted out, Mike, from the Times. And by the way, she's basically just advancing that yes. messaging campaign, which is stay at home, protect the NHS, save lives. Again, they're just doubling down on what they did last spring, which yeah. is what you explained in the previous slide. Uh, but let's take a look at that Times article. Here it is a little closer. Get tough now to save the NHS from imploding doctors urge. And again, a little propaganda lesson uh, for our viewers here at the UK column, pay close attention to every single detail because everything is placed for a reason. What's the first thing that we're looking at here? 
Look in the background. What does that say? Stop a Bolton lockdown. Now, if you glance that very quickly, you might think that uh, that could be a protest. Who knows? Uh, but really what it's saying is stop a Bolton lockdown. Now, they're, they're basically saying that the people need to uh, comply with uh, masks and yeah, social because they distancing. have they have the lady at the bottom there just just almost off the off the photograph with the mask on so you got to make sure you're wearing your mask properly that's right and she's a she's a menacing a certain type of menacing character there she is right there she is basically let's call her Karen from Bolton just uh, using any any random word there Karen from Bolton and she is for she's an enforcer look at that she's got a mean look in her eyes she's pissed off. She's ready. She wants. She's. Got, she wants blood, basically, for anybody that's not complying, like she is. So that is the propaganda messaging that the mainstream media uh, is pushing out there. So let's take a. Let's break this down in in terms of what the psychological messaging here. So stop a local lockdown. That's what it's saying. How do you stop a local lockdown? Well, it could be translated this way: um, stop the government from locking us down, that could be the first option, or stop people from making the government lock us down again. Mm -hmm. And I think it's basically, it's definitely number two. It's definitely number two. So here's the prime minister, and again, this is under the, the heading of Applied Behavioral Psychology 101, let's call it here, there's Boris. So basically, stop a local lockdown, so stop the people from making the government lock us down again. That's the applied behavioral psychology in the messaging, Mike. Uh, would you agree? Absolutely. Would you agree? Now, let's, let's take a look at where this is going to lead us here. And I, I found this wonderful uh, cartoon which really illustrates everything. You've got the birds in the cage saying, look at that idiot putting us all in danger. They're pointing out the window, obviously, at that little birdie flying free outside in the sunshine because people like that, we'll never be safe, says the birds in the cage. So let's call that little birdie, let's call him free bird. And over here in the cage, let's call these compliant subjects. And again, this is this really is applied behavioral psychology 101. You, you can't explain it any better than a cartoon in ways that cartoons so often do, Mike. Yes, okay, well look, uh, let's move on to this then. This is the Office for National Statistics and they produced a release yesterday or the day before, uh, deaths due to COVID-19 compared to deaths from influenza and pneumonia. Uh, and well, it was quite an interesting little quote that we took out of this uh, because they said influenza and pneumonia was mentioned on more death certificates than COVID-19. However, COVID-19 was the underlying cause of death and over three times as many deaths between January and August. 2020. Now, perhaps you can explain to me how uh, influenza and pneumonia can be mentioned uh, more often on death certificates, but be the cause of death, death much less th uh, than COVID-19. It sounds like they've reordered uh, the hierarchy there uh, in terms of causes of death. So a medical determination might seems to have been made. Ah, that's a very good point. Has a medical determination been made? Well, let's uh, find out. Well, first of all, let's just look briefly at the figures. Uh, this is what they said. Death certificate mentions, uh, 506 mentions of influenza, uh, 69,781 mentions uh, of pneumonia, and COVID-19, 52,327 mentions. That's on the death certificates themselves. Uh, but in terms of uh, what were they're describing as underlying causes of death, uh, flu was only 394 deaths, pneumonia was 13,619 deaths, and COVID-19 was 48,168 deaths. Hold the press, Mike. This is a major scoop. So according to the Office of National Statistics, pneumonia is no longer really a danger anymore. It's becoming less lethal. So pneumonia has suddenly not become a cause of death. Seems that way, seems that way. Very but, exciting. But the question is, what is underlying causation? Uh, well, in order to find out, you might go to uh, this article. It's been recently published on the UK column, COVID-19, Everything and Nothing by Ian Davis. And let's just get a little quote from this, uh, because he makes the point that the quite bizarre death registration process compelled the ONS to issue guidance to doctors that are signing medical certificates of cause of death. Not only is there no need for an examination to pronounce death from COVID-19, there's no requirement for a positive test or even an indicative CT scan, right? So, well, we'll come on to a couple of questions about this, but this is the advice, uh, the, sorry, the guidance that the Office for National Statistics published. 
uh, for use during emergency period only, however. Now, uh, of course, the emergency period doesn't seem like it's ever going to end. So this is uh, the advice that's going to continue. And let's just get a couple of quotes from this. First of all, it says COVID-19 is an acceptable direct or underlying cause of death for the purposes of completing the medical certificate of cause of death. Uh, and it goes on to say, if before death the patient had symptoms typical of COVID-19 infection, but the test result has not been received, it would be satisfactory to give COVID-19 as the cause of death. So in other words, make it up as you go along. If, it, if you think that perhaps bearing in mind that the symptoms that you might see are pretty vague and non-ending, non uh, if you think the symptoms are appropriate, just slap COVID-19 as the underlying cause of death. Sure, why not? If it, if it might be COVID, might as well put down COVID, right? It might as well put down COVID. So, so what this is quite clear, what's quite clear here is that these statistics, as we've been saying from the beginning, cannot be trusted uh, because there's no there's no scientific or medical basis for making the determination. It's it's a, 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 a judgment call uh, by a busy doctor in a busy uh, intensive care ward. Uh, there's no uh, post-mortem carried out. There's no uh, investigation carried out to confirm whether COVID-19 was actually the underlying cause or whether any of the comorbidities that many of these people have had uh, were the underlying cause. So, so, so basically what the key word there was during an emergency period. Yes. Okay, during an emergency period. So the assumption there is that if the government says we're an emergency period, then it's, it must be an emergency, yeah, even though no one's really interrogating the what's the actual, you know, uh, the the truth of that okay yes so but that assumes that the NHS Mike is being overstretched and that there aren't uh, the doctors don't have time to determine the cause of death because it quote it's an emergency and quote the NHS is being overrun even if it isn't even if it isn't so let's continue with this because if you're paying attention uh, well there's something very interesting here because not only is the Office for National Statistics logo on this guidance for doctors completing the medical certificates of cause of death in England and Wales, but so is HM Passport Office. Now, the question is, well, there are a couple of questions that arise out of this. Uh, and so I wrote to uh, Office for National Statistics this morning, haven't had a response yet, but I asked these questions. Uh, what qualifies the Office for National Statistics to give this guidance advice to the uh, doctors uh, in the first place? And I also want to know, why is this document published jointly with the Passport Office? Now, I'm going to suggest why right now, uh, but um, I'm still waiting for a confirmation or an explanation from the ONS. And as soon as I have that, I will let everybody know. But let's uh, go to the BBC uh, for a possible explanation, uh, because here is uh, the BBC's travel website, which, of course, is uh, produced by BBC, uh, a commercial arm of the BBC, BBC Global Media Limited. It's not... Uh, BBC itself, uh, and therefore it doesn't have the same restrictions in terms of commercial messaging, perhaps. Uh, but nonetheless, let's see what they were saying on this website. Uh, first of all, in this article, which is entitled, Will You Need an Immunity Passport to, tra to Travel? Uh, it says the global economy has been severely disrupted by COVID-19, with the virus wreaking particular devastation on the travel industry. Now, uh, Coroni is uh, particularly confused about this because uh, Coroni wasn't aware that in fact uh, an aircraft could become infected by this virus but that seems to be the implication of what the BBC is has written there uh, because they're saying quite clearly that the virus wreaked ha havoc devastation on the travel uh, industry not government policy uh, not uh, you know decisions by the industry itself uh, as a result of government policy no it was the virus that did it um, so Coroni's confused about that but anyway uh, it goes on to say this uh, an immunity passport is a presentable proof of immunity to COVID-19, said Hussein Kasai, the co-founder and CEO of Enfido, uh, a London-based technology company specializing in facial biometric certification. Mm -hmm. and, and Coroni was confused about this as well, because Coroni's wondering, well, is this article actually real or is it shilling for uh, tech companies that are actually attempting to sell the idea of a, an immunity passport to governments. Mm. And so Coroni's a bit confused about that. But of course, it's not just the BBC that's shilling for this idea, uh, because as we pointed out last week, uh, this gentleman, Lieutenant Colonel Tobias Elwood uh, from 77 Brigade, also an MP, 
uh, also shilling for this idea uh, because he's talking about developing a national database to track progress and issue vaccination certificates, which is a type of, of uh, immunity passport. And he went on to say, which will probably have to be internationally recognized in order to allow travel. So the question is, what, what kind of immunity passport might be internationally recognized? Well, let's, let's have a look at what kind, because it's been uh, in the press in the last couple of days. Here's an example of it. Big names in travel back common pass, new digital health passport to restart travel. Uh, and this is from Skift, uh, but it's been in other, other places as well. So they're talking about common pass. Now, what is common pass? Well, let's have a look. Uh, it is uh, created by this organization, the Commons Project. And the Commons Project says uh, that they are a non-profit public trust established to build platforms and services to make life better for people around the world. They believe that everyone should enjoy the full benefit of technology and data while maintaining control over their digital lives. We believe that communities are stronger when data is open and can be shared for the benefit of all. And they say they're unlocking the full potential of technology and data for the common good. But who's behind this? Well, the Commons Project was established with support from the Rockefeller Foundation. Of uh, so, of course. So what is it that they are doing? Well, three main areas of interest, common health, uh, COVID check, and common pass. Common health is a way to share your health data uh, in an open and uh, free way with all, all and sundry. Uh, COVID check helps you check your symptoms and make sure that you don't have COVID. Uh, and common pass, of course, is the immunity passport. Uh, and so here is Common Pass uh, for global travel and trade to return to pre-pandemic levels. Travelers will need a secure and verifiable way to document their health status as they travel uh, and cross borders. And the Common, sorry, the Commons Project, together with the World Economic Forum, uh, is working to initiate the uh, Common Pass framework to address these challenges. So again, we have the World Economic Forum involved in this. And of course, they're driving this idea of a great reset at the moment, mm -hmm. Patrick. So um, I'm going to suggest that based on what we understand so far, the reason that the Passport Office logo was on that advice for doctors is because the Passport Office is now front and central with involved in the whole health arena. We are going to see uh, immunity passports, uh, we are not going to be released from any kind of lockdown until we have those. Because if you remember what Tobias Elwood was talking about was the period, the uh, the transition period, as he called it, of about a year but from now until a vaccine is actually available to a, a, a reasonable number of people. Uh, and during that transition period, there are going to be other measures that allow people to get back to a more, more normal mode of life. But this is one of the, these things that people are going to have to choose whether they accept or not, or whether they're going to resist uh, this type of thing. Because, of course, if the, the way that this is going to be presented, Patrick, is that we are returning to normality with the benefit of this type of thing. We didn't have this before. And so this this type of surveillance and this type of uh, uh, tracking and tracing and so on. Merging ID with, with the medical industry, basically. Uh, absolutely. Yeah. And so uh, so this is not returning to the normal we had before. This is what they've been calling the new normal. And I don't think this is a direction of travel that we should be encouraging. And we, as individuals, we've got to decide whether we're going to accept it or not. So this is an outright deception. They're calling it normal or returning to normal. And it's not normal as before. It's not normal pre-COVID. It's an absolute deception. And the thing that jumped out is that uh, you need to, to prove your health status, your health status. So your health status, uh, according to this system, Mike, this technocracy system, has nothing to do with your actual health and your actual well-being, how healthy you are, mm -hmm. uh, how fit you are, how well you eat, how, how, how low your stress levels are, and you know, how long you're going to live. It has nothing to do with that. According to these technocrats, your health status has to do with how many vaccines you've had, mm. basically, full stop. Or whether their test, their absolutely flawed uh, tests, say that you supposedly have coronavirus. So they're using COVID-19 or coronavirus, which on the scale of deadly uh, uh, viruses and resp seasonal respiratory uh, pathogens uh, isn't, isn't particularly uh, deadly, Mike, compared to many others, mm. okay? I'm talking about TB and a number of other things. But they're using it as a Trojan horse, as a facade uh, to overlay a new system of biosurveillance that's going to be more intrusive than anything anyone has ever seen 
ever, mm -hmm. okay? And they want this to be permanent. So absolute command and control of where you, where you can go, where you can move, what venues you can step into, who you can associate with, whether you can get an education in person face-to-face, -face, whether you can operate a business, whether you can go into a business. Mm -hmm. All of this is being controlled through this biosurveillance uh, program that they're attempting to push through uh, under the color of COVID, under the color of COVID. Because in reality, there is no uh, pandemic mm. uh, right now in terms of what, what is the common definition of a pandemic according to the World Health Organization. Uh, it, it doesn't rise to the level right now of epidemic or pandemic, right now, today. Okay. Uh, and, it, and in fact, as we have made the point many, many times, Patrick, there's a big question mark over whether there ever was uh, even at the height of the pandemic in April, whether it was actually a pandemic or whether the excess mortality was being caused by the fact that the NHS was shut down uh, and care homes were not getting the medical support that they needed. And, so, and cooking the books on death certificates yes. and record keeping and things yes. like that. So it's questionable whether there has ever been a pandemic uh, from the beginning, but you, that's... You uh, can make that argument, yeah. and many have, yeah. many have. So... Okay, well, look, uh, if you like what the UK Column does, you would like to support us, then please head over to ukcolumn.org forward slash community. There are options to help us out there, and that would be very much appreciated. Uh, and another reminder that AV 11.1 is taking place on the 1st of November. Uh, and in fact, it will begin uh, on the Saturday evening uh, with a couple of presentations. So uh, tickets are available at alternativeview.co.uk, also on the UK Column website. Uh, Dr. Graham Dining is uh, now confirmed on the list of speakers as well. Um, so, uh, so do uh, take part in that if you possibly can. Now, uh, where does that take us? Uh, well, Tobias Elwood back on screen again. Here he is. Uh, now, as a result of our coverage of his statement to the House of Commons uh, a week or so ago, quite a number of you wrote to him and asked some very pertinent questions. Uh, and as a result, well, he wasn't terribly happy about it, but he did uh, generally make this statement. Uh, he said, I have never stated that vaccines would be mandatory. Now, of course, he may not have done in so many words, uh, but of the, the truth is that actually vaccines are going to be mandatory. We've given a hint in the previous segment about how it will be effectively mandatory, whether, whether the government claims that it's mandatory or not. They're not going to pass any legislation because that would be too controversial, but they're going to make it effectively mandatory because it's going to be a requirement to actually do anything. Well, let's just give you an example of how this is already happening. Um, so this uh, was sent to me this morning. Thank you very much for the person who sent it. It's a letter from uh, an NHS trust to a patient. Uh, let's just have a look at the detail of it. Uh, because it says this, I'm writing following our telephone conversation to confirm that your hysterectomy, which was listed for 6th October 2020, has now been cancelled. Uh, it says, during our telephone conversation, as well as in your pre-assessment, you made it very clear that you do not wish to have the pre-operative COVID swab done, uh, although you're happy with the 14-day self-isolation. Now, I'm not going to comment on whether or not it's appropriate to have a pre-operative COVID swab. People can make their own minds up about that. That's not what this is about. This is about the fact that this person's uh, operation was cancelled because they made a choice. Um, and uh, the, the choice was uh, a lot lower down the scale than the choice about whether to take a vaccination or not. So uh, that choice was made and this was the result. It went on to say, I'm afraid, therefore, that we cannot proceed with your surgical procedure on the planned date. I've removed your name from the waiting list as the current policy is unlikely to change for the, for the foreseeable future. So in other words, because somebody uh, pushed back a little bit on a requirement made by, and the question is whether the requirement is even appropriate. We're going to come on to that in a second. But on, uh, because somebody pushed back on a requirement that, some, that, that a, an official decided on, uh, they have uh, had NHS treatment withdrawn from them. Uh, this is going to be the same as we move along towards a vaccine. That's the nature of how this stuff becomes mandatory. Because if you're having health care uh, removed on the basis of making a choice, it's effectively mandatory. So if you're, they're denying access yes. to normal uh, NHS care if you don't comply with the various COVID uh, testing regimes and uh, biosurveillance. Absolutely. Regimes. So the question is, how appropriate was this? Well, in fact, The Guardian uh, gives us a clue. 
COVID precautions delaying NHS surgery may be unnecessary. Study finds now in this case, of course, the surgery wasn't delayed. It was prevented. But this article is saying uh, thousands of patients may be facing unnecessarily long waiting times for surgery because of a misplaced assumption about the COVID-19 risk posed to healthcare staff by a routine procedure, a study has found. For months, operating theatres have been running at reduced capacity, leading to some of the longest waiting lists for surgery since records began. A major reason has been uh, the introduction of precautions to protect against airborne transmission of coronavirus via tiny droplets used in aeros uh, called aerosols uh, during the insertion and removal of the breathing tube that's placed in patients' airways while they're under general anaesthesia. Uh, the risk was judged so high uh, they've been classified as aerosol-generating procedures for which respirators and high-level personal protective equipment are required. Uh, the surgery must pause while the operating room is cleared of aerosols and special cleaning is undertaken. So not only is that, is that the requirement based on this, uh, but of course people are also required to take uh, swabs before they go into and confirm their status before they go in for an operation. Uh, uh, but a group of scientists have now discovered that this is uh, inappropriate uh, because the truth is, according to The Guardian, that no direct measurements of aerosols have ever been made. So this assessment that there's a risk was based on nothing, based on absolutely nothing. Just, just, just guesswork. Just saying we think it might be a risk. Right. So uh, a, a group of scientists have now said, well, actually, the risk is overstated. It's not really that serious at all. So my point here is there's no justification for the uh, treatment of this lady uh, based on a nasal swab uh, other than for behavioral reasons. Uh, but here we have uh, HSJ. This is a health service journal. Uh, leaked data gives first view of growing cancer waiting list post-COVID peak uh, because, of course, the NHS was shut down uh, over the uh, over the, the the peak of the so-called pandemic, um, not just cancer patients on waiting lists ever longer, uh, but here we have uh, breast cancer now talking about uh, one million women across uh, the UK unable to have a mammogram, uh, and uh, about eight thousand of those women will have had their diagnosis of a disease of cancer delayed, uh, and of course with the delay of the diagnosis becomes a much harder. A recovery process and potential death. So what's the what's the government's attitude towards that? Tough luck. Well, Sorry, so it, catch COVID and we'll be interested. Yes, the we'll, rest we'll give it. you a little bit of attention. But if you've got breast cancer, you've got pulmonary, heart, you're, you're high risk of a stroke. You know, on your bike, basically, get COVID and we'll we'll, we'll let you in. You can have some care. The, Otherwise, get lost. This is it, and that, in my opinion, is the real pandemic, not not Corona, who's confused about everything that's going on here. But save the NHS. But save the NHS. But it gets better because. As we said already, pay to comply. Everybody's after more money at the moment. Well, let's look at uh, Addenbrooke. Uh, and they have now started a campaign. Thank you to the person who sent this through to me uh, to look after their staff during the coronavirus crisis. Um, and what are they talking about raising money for? They're asking for people to, to make a monthly donation of £25. Uh, this is what they're fundraising for. Uh, children's Emergency Ambulance Service, okay. Uh, make the hospital even better. A cancer campaign. Uh, this is the stuff that they're not doing. They're not doing cancer operations. They're not doing cancer treatments, but they want more money for their cancer campaign. Uh, they want a major trauma campaign, but this is stuff that the NHS is supposed to be doing anyway. That's what accident and emergency is for, is major trauma. So they're marketing, they're, the, the way they're selling this, Mike, is that you're, you're donating to the NHS itself, like to, to, to hospitals. To and, hospitals. And nurses. To, to, to and, individual hospitals. Yes. yes. But, but that's not exactly what's happening, is it? The, these are campaigns. They, so you're, they're asking for your donation to what? Help with public relations and marketing campaigns? Good question. Lobbying, perhaps? Good question. On behalf of contractors who will be filling some of these demands for these new programs? I don't know. Is this a valid, not a valid question? It is. A transplant campaign there. Um, help your hospital appeal. Children's hospital campaign. They've got campaigns and appeals coming out of their ears. Uh, 3D surgical planning service appeal. Liver transplant service appeal. But most of these things are, are things that the NHS should be doing anyway. And it's not just Addenbrooke's uh, because here is uh, another one, uh, Birmingham. Uh, sorry, Nottingham Hospitals Charity. Uh, then what have we got here? King's College Hospital Charity. Heroes Appeal. Uh, yes, Heroes Appeal. We've got Oxford University Hospitals. 
NOC, this is another Heroes Appeal. Uh, we've got another Support Our Staff Appeal. This is from Royal Liverpool and Broad Green University Hospitals. So on the basis of COVID, on the basis of this wonderful uh, heroic work that the NHS is doing as a result of COVID, uh, we've got to make charitable donations to the NHS as well as the billions of 150 billion pounds a year of tax dollars that go into this. Uh, it, it is an incredible uh, situation that we're building here, an incredible narrative that we're building here. Um, but look at the bottom uh, paragraph on that last one, Mike. It's interesting. It says, this is to protect their own health, reduce the risk of our staff and patients, and to encourage everyone to follow the government's advice. So, in other words, make a charitable donation to be propagandized. That's what it looks like. I mean, I, I think this is worth uh, digging into, especially the first organization, because there's. The, it seems to me somewhat misleading, Mike. Yes. Uh, and, and highly disingenuous. So you remember the whole Farrar over Cambridge Analytica? Did that not dominate the headlines? We had those long, uh, dramatic, uh, very compelling hearings uh, on TV for months and months and months. Well, here we find out this week, and uh, that inflated bubble, unfortunately, just popped, Mike, uh, this week. This is the Information Commissioner's final report onto Cambridge Analytica here. Well, what we're going to show you is not really in the headline of this, but you dig into the article, and you can see, well, the final conclusion, Mike, is that uh, Cambridge Analytica did not uh, meddle in the Brexit leave campaign. So no further evidence to change my earlier view that uh, SCL, the parent company of Cambridge Analytica, were not involved in the EU referendum campaign uh, in the UK. And also uh, the, the group's famous marketing slogan, uh, we've got 5,000 data points on every individual, was also deemed to be an exaggeration, Mike. So. Uh, just, just back to this point. So Carol Kidwallader, uh, who's an uh, integrity initiative journalist, she was outed as an integrity initiative journalist for The Guardian. She raked up tons of awards on the back of this story that Cambridge Analytica meddled uh, in the Brexit referendum process. And she, they won BAFTAs for a documentary called The Great Hack on Netflix. It just cleaned up on the awards. Mm -hmm. She took home a Pulitzer Prize on the back of this story, mm -hmm. which we now know is a fake story. Mm -hmm. So all of her work was basically based on a lie. And she cleaned up with Pulitzers, BAFTA awards, and featured in this uh, Netflix documentary. I mean... Well, I presume she'll be given the, ba the BAFTAs and the Pulitzer back. She should return the Pulitzer, really. Do you think she will? No. I don't think so. This is how the establishment works. They create awards for people who push propaganda and who push their lies. And shame on The Guardian uh, for not even doing their due diligence on this and so many other stories. This reminds me so much of the White Helmets as well in terms of sort of wholesale fraud of a narrative. But Russiagate as well is baked into this because the Russians, the whole, the, the whole campaign and the whole propaganda campaign, the Russians were backing Brexit or somehow involved in meddling mm. uh, in the Brexit vote. So they, this was all part of the anti-Trump uh, and anti-Russian effort uh, from 2017, 2018 and on. And so now it's just collapsed into a heap of ash. Are we surprised? Uh, no, no. Just before we move on, Patrick, to, uh, to the last uh, story, what, what is the situation with, uh, with the uh, election in the United States? How is Trump doing? Uh, Trump is uh, doing, it's, it's, Biden is ahead in the polls, uh, if you believe all the, the mainstream polls. But wasn't Hillary Clinton ahead in the polls uh, in 2016? Yeah, so in that sense, uh, right now we're seeing a repeat of uh, a kind of a pattern of what happened in 2016 with this overestimation uh, that um, Hillary Clinton was, you know, had a landslide uh, potential lead over Trump going into the final um, stretch of the election cycle. And now with Biden, it's almost mirroring it uh, identically. Mm. So in terms of the poll lead, 14, 16 percent, things like that. So we're seeing the exact same thing happen now, although it's, I think, more distorted now uh, than it was in 2016 for a number of different reasons, one of which is the Democratic Party is not really unified at all behind Biden and Kamala Harris. So there's splits. Mainly I'm talking about the burners the Bernie Sanders crowd. So that makes this kind of overestimation uh, even more distorted. So it, it is very much neck and neck. And we've looked at the, the polls and the potential voting and where, where we think states are going to be you know, heading. 
on election day, and it, it does look like it's going to be absolutely razor thin. It will come down to literally one or two states uh, in electoral votes. Uh, but we have Donald Trump at the moment, it looks like, winning by a very slim margin on the day. But that, the, the story might not end there. Uh, the Democrats have made threats. A number of different uh, plots have been hatched uh, to extend the vote counting period for weeks after November 3rd and doing so by under the guise of we need to count all the postal ballots. So now we, of course, now we know why the Democrats were pushing for this universal postal voting from the early in the summer under the color of COVID, mm. saying, oh, it's not safe to go to the polling uh, in person on the day, so it's better to vote at home uh, in the safety of your home and then post the uh, vote in. But the problem is the, the, the ballots need to be postmarked by November 3rd, which means they could arrive and be counted all the way up till November 10th. That's a full week mm -hmm. after the election. And we all saw what happened in the US mm -hmm. after George Floyd, for instance, or even after the last uh, ele Trump election in 2016, there was rioting in multiple cities. Mm -hmm. Arson, uh, mobs were coming out and tearing, tearing apart Oakland, Portland, uh, parts of LA. There are, protesting all over the place. There are many more people activated for that type of protest now than there Ten were at that time. Ten times more. Yes. Ten times more. So the, so the Democrat strategy seems to be they want to buy time after the election to sort of extend or to not recognize the result of the voting on the day. And then you could have chaos. You could have little pockets of civil war type, um, not, not a full-on civil war, but you could have you know, really heated partisan face-offs and possibly street violence. I, I think I think the thing, one of the things that concerned me most about this uh, potential, Patrick, uh, and I talked about this with uh, with Richard Black. On if, if anybody hasn't seen the discussion that I had with uh, the former state senator Richard Black, uh, have a look on the UK Columns YouTube channel for that discussion because because of course what Nancy Pelosi and others have been saying is that if Trump is still in office in January they want him removed physically. That's right. Uh, and they're talking about calling in the army to help do that. Now, that that takes things to a whole new level. And she's also, just yesterday, she announced that there, she's putting together a special 25th Amendment committee uh, to basically decide whether the president is mentally fit, uh, according to the 25th Amendment, that gives Congress uh, an open door to, again, ty a type of impeachment, if you will, to deem the president not mentally fit to, to perform the uh, duties of the office. So they'd just done that last night. So that was the, the, the third third or fourth uh, coup plot that's been hashed. Mm. And it's, that's a very desperate move. So basically, they, they've lined up four or five different contingencies, and they're going to go for everything, basically. Mm. It's going to be a full court press. So it's going to be ugly. I said this uh, last week on the Sunday Wire, uh, on a radio show on every Sunday, a 21st Century Wire, the Sunday Wire, I said, it's going to be messy. Expect it. And and a lot of the mess is going to come from the mainstream press, which universally despises Trump. Oh, they're going to be all totally on board with the chaos and saying, oh, this, we can't recognize this result. There needs to be a recount. And it'll go all the way up to the Supreme Court if necessary. And that will take you right into December, yeah. basically. All bets are off for the month of November. Anything could happen. Yeah. I mean, they'll be calling for the president to step down if 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 he wins or if he's deemed to be the winner, they're not gonna accept it. And uh, most likely the mob will, like they do in the Ukraine or the or Belarus mm -hmm. with the color revolution, they'll say, he needs to go, he needs to step down. Okay, uh, okay, Patrick, uh, let's come back to the UK then. And uh, what's going on here? Well, it's not just the UK. A lot of people have been asking us, uh, and I'm sure I'm not alone here in terms of the messaging and emails I'm getting, what's up with all the sign language in the last, say, 12 months? We've seen. Uh, this kind of increase in this prominence of the person who's doing the sign language. What's going on here? This this wasn't necessarily a major feature, like say five, six, seven, ten years ago. But in fact, it really only started as far as the daily briefings that you've got on screen at the moment. It didn't really start until even May time. It was it was actually quite late coming in terms of the the daily briefings, to, and then yeah. it's been every single briefing. Yes, and, and to the point where the, the size and prominence of the person giving the sign language is, is equal in some cases, or almost equal to the actual politician or the, the head of state or something like this. And so what is this all about? What could it possibly be about? We don't know for sure. A lot of people are commenting, Mike, that it's, this is disruptive. 
it's distracting and it's disruptive. It, 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 it really is, it frustrates viewers. And so is this an intentional strategy? This is going on right across the United States, even on local and city governments. So it's become kind of a trend. What does it mean? What percentage of the population um, are actually needing this? And is this the only way to communicate what's being said? Do you need a sign person on screen? And that's an interesting question in itself. So uh, our friends over at uh, Woke Capital said this, said, uh, have you noticed a recent trend of sign language interpreters during government press conferences? Of course you have. Uh, they're very distracting, always in motion, and placed for maximum visibility. Why do they do this when closed captioning technology exists? Now, this is kind of a fair question. Now, in the U.S., uh, this has become something major in terms of you know, prominence. This is just a couple of uh, state briefings here, and this is becoming a, a, a real sort of standard thing that you're seeing on TV. Of course, there's New York with uh, Governor Cuomo and de Blasio down on the bottom left and right. Um, so the question is, it, do we need to have somebody on camera mm -hmm. doing this? And you know, how many people is this benefiting for one? And is there another alternative? Well, we're going to say that yes, we can read captions too. The technology exists. It's already on on YouTube. It's already on Twitter. It's on the broadcast networks. Is there any place that doesn't have captioning capability? Uh, that's a, a fair enough question. Uh, well, it is. Uh, but on the other hand, Patrick, you know, there are ca cases when uh, the signer has, has done things that are, seem appropriate. So this is doing the rounds at the moment. Thank you very much to the person who sent it through to me. And, and uh, so uh, the caption reads, uh, even the sign lady has had enough of uh, Nicola Sturgeon's rubbish. Uh, and uh, well, she seems to be signing by putting up uh, two re relatively rude uh, or it could be gestures. something totally different, Mike. It, it could be, yes. It could be simply misunderstood. Our, our viewer who sent this in might just be uh, mis misleaded, misled, misled yeah. uh, by, just doesn't understand what real signage is. Maybe someone who's listening who does sign can tell us what those two gestures actually mean. Uh, do get in touch with the UK column. Uh, absolutely. Okay. Well, look, we will leave it there for today. Thank you very much for joining me, Patrick. Uh, thank you very much for joining us. Uh, we'll be back at the same time, 1 p.m. on Monday as usual. Hope you have a great weekend, and we'll see you then. Bye-bye.